This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We're in the tail end of Season 8. My name is David Dalton. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York. He's also the Dun Scotus Professor of Spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago, and he's a columnist at the National Catholic Reporter. Now, normally I'd also be welcoming Heidi Schlumpf, but she's unable to join us today. But fear not, dear listeners— she will be back with us again in two weeks for our final episode for the season. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can also talk to us by emailing us at FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is FrancisFX, the letters F and X, and our email is the word effect, E-F-F-E-C-T. Dan, how are you? David, I'm hanging in there. It is toward the end of our academic semester here at CTU. We have this odd, academically odd third term. A lot of universities, a lot of graduate schools have what they call a January term or J term between fall and spring. We have a May term, which is smushed at the end of the spring semester before the summer. So we're getting ready to move into that abbreviated little mini-mester of sorts. So things are moving along. Things in Chicago here, as the weather is looking a little bit nicer, though we're supposed to get some snow tomorrow. We're recording this on Monday. So you never know in a Chicago April. But other than that, plugging along, trying to keep on trucking, as they used to say. How about you? What's going on in your neck of the woods? So we are slowly getting all vaccinated in our house. And the kids have a chance now that the weather has gotten good for at least a couple weeks. And the bans on using playground equipment have been lifted here in Chicago. They've been getting out for several hours each day. And that has been, that's been a balm in our household because I think the stir craziness and the pent up energy was really getting to us. And I will say I, I've had a, a real kind of good break in the clouds myself in the past few weeks. And writing got weird for a little while for me. And longtime listeners will know that I have some issues that kind of deal with my productivity at times. And so I'm happy to say that real progress is being made on one of my books. 
I'm still very late turning it in, but the editor is very patient, and I'm hoping that it will be seeing the light of day or at least seeing the light of the next step of the editorial process before the midpoint of the year. And I'm just, I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful for the chance to be connecting with more people, and I'm really glad to see you today. It's always such a pleasure. And beyond that, I'm just, we're trying to stay as normal as possible. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, normal in the time of pandemic is is an odd time. And I appreciate your hearing, first of all, hearing the progress on, on the writing. That's excellent. But also, I, I join your voice, join with your voice in sending out notes of gratitude to editors who are generous and, and patient because I'm uh, slow on a couple projects myself and my editors. I appreciate you all. Let me also just give a shout out to some folks on the West Coast. Last week, I had the privilege of giving a lecture at Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington, the almost national champions in basketball this year, go Zags, hopefully another round next year, provided the Bonnies don't win at all. It was wonderful to spend some time with the students and faculty and staff there, the Office of of Mission and Ministry. And on a number of occasions, folks mentioned listening to the podcast. So to all of you who listen to us and who like the Francis Effect, thank you. Keep it up and spread the word. That is Um, awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's always nice to meet in real time some of our listeners. And I know, I think I speak for you and me, David, that we really kind of lament not being able to go out to California this year for the LA Religious Ed Congress in in person, because that's an annual opportunity to meet dozens and dozens of folks who listen to this program on a regular basis. So we do appreciate you. Thank you all for listening and, and spreading the word and being a great audience. And thank you also. We've gotten a lot of emails lately from folks, both folks that are encouraging us and some folks that are correcting our grammar and other sorts of things that we do along the way. So we're grateful for all of that. (laughs) We are just people. (laughs) We're fallible. Well, today on the show, we're going to be picking up three topics. A recent flurry of anti-transgender legislation that has been unveiled across the country. We're going to be talking about that in light of a recent column that you did for NCR, Dan. Then we're going to be picking up on the kind of moving needle of religious liberty cases at the Supreme Court level, and I'm going to enjoy talking about that, the other SCOTUS, as Dan likes to remind us. (laughs) And then we're going to be wrapping it up with a a subject that I know is near and dear to your heart, Earth Day, and maybe even getting into a little bit of how Laudato Si can help us to think about Earth Day. So that's what's coming up on the show. Please do stay with us. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Since January 1st of this year, more than 80 anti-transgender bills have been introduced into state legislatures across the United States. These legislative proposals cover a range of oppressive actions, including the prohibition of transgender girls and women from participating in school sports and prohibiting or even criminalizing gender-affirming care for some transgender persons. As advocacy groups like the Human Rights Campaign have noted, quote, these bills are not addressing any real problem and they're not being requested by constituents. Rather, this effort is being driven by national far-right organizations attempting to score political points by sowing fear and hate, unquote. Given that such harmful proposals threaten the dignity and value of human life among the transgender community, you might think that church leaders would be eager to oppose this kind of legislation. But sadly, some individual bishops and representatives of the USCCB have sided with Republican lawmakers and far-right organizations seeking to curb these civil liberties of trans people. 
Dan, the Catholic Church prides itself on being a community that is pro-life and defends human dignity and value. What should we make of this current anti-transgender trend and the complicity of church leaders in the opposition to the civil rights of trans people? It's a great question, David. There are some things that happen culturally, that happen pastorally, that happen, you know, in church and society that seem to me at least, and I imagine to many other people, that ought to be what we call no-brainers, that this is like an obvious thing. And this is really where I'm coming from with this topic, which is when any particular group of people is demonized, targeted, discriminated against, this is sinful, this is evil. So it seems to me like a no-brainer that this should be an issue of justice, an issue of human dignity, an issue in which the church should rally in solidarity with our trans siblings. I wrote a column last week on this topic, and the column is basically arguing for why the Catholic Church in the United States should oppose these anti-transgender legislative proposals. And I and I begin with this line. I say it at the outset of my column, just because something is new to you does not mean that it is novel or a fad. And I think this is a really important, although axiomatic or obvious statement, I think it's important for us to remember that a lot of things that people are just learning about, and they may learn about because of increased visibility, or they might learn about it because of increased communications technology. They hadn't heard about this before. But it's like, you know, you and I are both professors. We're educators. You're a parent. You have kids who are learning new things every day. And just because a kid learns something like gravity doesn't mean that it's new to them. Or just because one of our students learns the intricacies or the historical debates around a doctrine in the Christian faith doesn't mean that this is a new thing that we're making up. It just means that it's new to you. And that's how I think we need to be starting with and thinking about this. I think the reality of transgender identities and the experiences of transgender persons, how it's so very different from what is considered normative, what is considered the standard, quote unquote, because a lot of people do not, you know, what we call cisgender identified people, which means, you know, your gender identity conforms with your kind of natal biological sex. So the sex that's given to you at birth, and there are a number of factors we could get into that about how that's determined and, and how that varies and whatnot. But we cisgender comes from the Latin as trans does. Trans means to move beyond. Cis means basically to stay as is. And it simply means that you don't experience this what psychologists call gender dysmorphia, this sense of discomfort, this sense of disease, this this sense of misalignment with one's inherent identity and the way that they're being perceived or identified in in a social context. And that's the first thing I I think we need to highlight. And, And historians and scholars and activists have pointed out that, as I quote in my column, even the Catholic Health Association points out in one of its texts that basically as long as there have been human beings, there have been people who are transgender. And just because there's greater visibility today, and I think that's a blessing, I think that's a positive thing, doesn't mean that this is some fad to be dismissed or some sort of novel thing that is like hip with the kids, which is the way some of this legislation is being introduced. Well, and I, I want to add to that, and, and for listeners who may be unfamiliar, if you look at the history of this subject, you can find that there's been a lot of work that's been done on cultures going back hundreds of years. For example, in many Native American cultures, there are those that are known as the Burdashas or those that, that sort of travel between the genders. We can find examples of transgender persons being documented in European cultures going back at least 150 years. And those are just the ones that are allowed to be visible. So as you say, this has been something that has been a part of cultures for a long time. 
it's just recently that it has become part of a legal conversation here in the United States. And that can cause, because now it's more visible, that can cause the sense that this is somehow a fad or something that is coming on the scene. But let me now shift to what we might call the kind of traditional views of Catholic teaching that want to say, no, there are only two genders, they're in a binary, they're complementary to one another, and this is all part of God's design. So as those of us who who want to say, no, this is part of the human condition, how do we speak to that assertion from Catholic teaching that would say otherwise? It's it's complicated. I made a comment in my column where I say there is no magisterial teaching on this, which is, in fact, technically and theologically true. I saw some minor comments from people on social media contesting that, saying, well, in Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis's post-synodal exhortation on the family, there is a paragraph 56 in which, the, as I point out in my column and previously in other writings, there's the term gendered ideology, quote-unquote, that's being introduced. Well, that term doesn't mean anything. That's a vacuous, amorphous term, and it gets passed around as, you know, it refers to whatever people want it to. It can refer to civil and political agendas of women's liberation movements, feminist movements. It could be applied to transgender or LGBTQ plus identities, you know. So, so that, yeah, that statement comes up, and there are some church leaders, even Pope Francis, who have used these kinds of terms, but they're vague. To your point, I think it's worth noting that it depends what sources you rely on to talk about the human person. And so there are a couple of factors we need to take into consideration. Most of Roman Catholic moral theology is grounded in a not Thomistic theology, but a neo-Thomism, a kind of late 17th, 18th, 19th century reinterpretation of Thomas Aquinas' thought. And since the late 19th century, with Pope Leo XIII's effectively canonizing Thomas Aquinas as the so-called common doctor, that neo-scholastic and neo-Thomist in particular way of viewing the world, which is deeply Aristotelian, very binary, it's limited to a 13th century worldview that includes a 13th century understanding of science. And I'm using science anachronistically because science meant something different. Aristotelian science is what the the people like Thomas and Bonaventure at Paris were talking about. I, I bring this up because I think one way to think about how one responds as the church calls us to in Gaudium et Spes, to respond to the signs of the times in the light of the gospel, which is the church's mandate. And by church, I mean all Christians, all the baptized, including church leaders, bishops and priests and religious and so forth. What that requires is that we recognize that there are a number of sources that can be drawn from within the tradition to help us to understand more fully what it is we're engaging. So let me just provide an analogy. There are certain theological approaches that like a kind of neo-Thomism, and there are lots of different varieties, so I'm just being general here. First of all, the concept of gender doesn't exist, and biological sex in a time prior to the scientific revolution is also squishy. So what exactly they understood to be gender or sex or sexuality is very, it, it doesn't align with what we know today. So that's important to keep in mind. But I think about it in terms of like photography. If you go back to the medium of film, if you have a role of black and white film and you have a role of color negative film, and you take a picture of the same scene, one with black and white and one with color, you're going to have, on the one hand, a view of the same picture, right? The same scene. But what gets registered is very different. So if you're operating with the black and white film, a certain lens or a certain kind of medium to assess, as it were, 
the scene, there are lots of things you're just not going to see that don't fit, that don't register on the medium, that don't register through that lens. Whereas with, let's say, the color film, you're going to see a lot of other things that wouldn't be seen otherwise. I, I bring up that kind of awkward analogy because I think the way that certain philosophical and theological and ideological positions are invoked are a lot like that black and white film. Thomas Aquinas has nothing to say about transgender identity explicitly. <laughs> but people say, well, this doesn't appear in this medium. It doesn't appear through this lens. It's, well, you're taking something that doesn't recognize the whole breadth, the whole spectrum of reality in a way that maybe other resources could. That's incredibly helpful. And I, I really like the analogy of black and white and color film. And I've never thought about it that way before. But when you say it, I realize, oh, yeah. And th this is a problem of the church generally when it is rear-facing and it's not taking into account the greater breadth of what is demonstrable in our current human experience. There's another way of thinking about this also, and it's something that you and I have talked about many times on the show, and that is, if we're going to be really, truly Christian about this, my sense is that we have to look around in in our view, who is suffering at this moment, and who has the power to alleviate that suffering. And so in this particular case, the people who are suffering are people who are being literally disenfranchised, who are being literally done violence against, who are being barred from certain types of access to medical treatments. That's a type of suffering. We could argue that is a very real type of suffering that interrupts and disrupts human lives at fundamental levels, both in terms of education access, but also in terms of medical access. And so the question would be, what is the proper human response when lives are being disrupted? To me, it's a no-brainer. You use your power to help those that are vulnerable and in need. You don't argue for some kind of arbitrary rule, but instead you look at the need in front of you. For me, fundamentally, this is Jesus Christ in the cornfield saying, I know the Sabbath says this, but there's a hungry person in front of me. And to me, that's the same kind of model that we need to be looking at here. I know that the Catholic Church says this, but there's a suffering person in front of me. And my response to the law is to ignore the law to the extent that I can help the suffering person in front of me. Well, and I don't even think it goes that far, because to my point earlier, the Catholic Church doesn't say anything about this. So there is this notion that is a little bit more fleshed out around cisgender identities and gender complementarity when it comes to men and women. But scholars, myself included, for decades now have pointed out the inadequacies of this way of thinking, and that there are other resources in the tradition to help us think through this. I think the myopia, this is where that black and white film imagery analog comes in. You don't see everything, but it's a choice. The choice might be, like, take out that black and roll film and, and put in a role of something else that's more encompassing of reality as it actually is. And I think that's more in keeping with the notion, as Anselm says about theology, as fides corns intellectum, that we continually understand things. I'll give another quick example. Or I'll give two, for that matter. One is bi biological evolution. That was a, a real source, and for some Christians today, continues to be a source of consternation because they can't reconcile that with millennia-old sacred scripture. You know, if they have a literalist reading of Genesis, for instance, or they can't reconcile it with Thomas Aquinas's understanding of the emergence of the world and God's creation, because the science, the access, the color film wasn't, wasn't pun intended, developed yet. You couldn't see it all. And yet we've come, as John Paul II, even Pius XII, back in the early 20th century, recognized, well, we have to incorporate this. We have to engage 
natural science and scientific discoveries in a way that is in conversation with our faith and not viewed from the outset as oppositional. I, I, I think it's one of these things, too. You've highlighted a pastoral responsibility, and I think that's also really important that there's the theological work that continues to be done and needs to be done, but there's also this pastoral point. The second example I was going to use is religious liberty. Before 1965, the church did not believe in a right to religious liberty, and yet look at the culture warrior bishops and certain Christians today, who that's all they ever want to talk about. And it's, well, that's only a 50-year-old church teaching, people. <laughs> so if you're cool with religious liberty, then I think you need to start rethinking what else you should be cool with when it comes to, you know, fides corns intellectum, the ongoing development of church teaching. I want to try out one last idea before we go to break, and that is, in my experience, when the magisterium is actually making definitive statements and when it's actually making teaching plain, it it takes the time to develop and define pieces and lay them out. I think about some of the teachings on how we're supposed to read the Bible as Catholics and a very elaborate document that talks about all the different ways historically that they have seen different people read the Bible, and they say, and here's the way that we now summarize pieces of that, and here's how we're moving forward. For me, as a teacher that oftentimes is teaching the Bible, it's a document that I find very clear as a teaching document. When we don't have a well-defined teaching, we have instead an operation of what I'll call a kind of shadow magistrate where the church is operating in terms of what people assume to be true, but they don't necessarily, they haven't necessarily defined what is true. And so what I see right now is a lot of trans people getting caught by this kind of shadow magisterium. There's not well-defined teaching, as you're saying. Nevertheless, a lot of Catholics feel that it's a certain way, and therefore they're taking actions in regard to public policy and in the public sphere that are actually affecting the lives of trans people. Now, when I put it out that way, have I got some clarity about about this, or would you say it a different way? No, I think you're onto something, David. I, I think a further development of that goes back to where we opened, which is just because something is new to you or something is unfamiliar or because it's not the way you thought it was, there are different ways to respond to this. One is with humbleness, with openness, which is how all people should treat the school of life and to learn from other people's experiences. And the Catholic Church makes this clear at Vatican II. Nostra Aetate makes it especially clear that the Church rejects nothing in other religious traditions or cultures that is true and good. It, it acknowledges that there are things we still need to learn. And this is in opposition to a long-held belief that, sadly, many of our fellow baptized Catholic Christians continue to hold on to with white knuckles today, which is that everything you need to know is contained within the Catholic Church. Well, that's just simply not true. You don't go to your priest to have an assessment on lung cancer or something like this, right? So, you know, let's let's be real about this. You know, and I think back to that original point about, you know, discomfort or novelty, I think a lot of these, they may be well-meaning people, including church leaders, are speaking out about things that they find discomforting, that they find new or, or confusing or scary. And instead of learning and listening and taking into consideration a, a wide array of knowledge and experience, they're lashing out in a defensive, reactive, and reactionary way. And so I think at the heart, at the end of the day, the most important thing is a pastoral response. And when we see our trans siblings being identified in such discriminatory ways, their civil rights being trampled upon, the fact that they're being scapegoated for political reasons by the far right, these are things that should get Catholic Christians and church leaders in particular animated about defending the people, like you said, David, who are 
in this case, incredibly vulnerable, which is what the Bible tells us to do. It's what God has entrusted us with in terms of responsibility. So that should be our operating principle, even if yet some people don't understand this whole picture and and the experiences of others. Well, unfortunately, I'm sure that we will have more opportunities to talk about these legislative attempts and this issue. But for now, we're going to have to take a break. For those of us that are listening, whether you are cisgendered, transgendered, non-binary, or any other place along the wonderful spectrum of color film that we've been discussing here today, we're grateful for you, your beloved children of God, and we are praying for you. And we will be back in just a moment. Amen. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together, usually with our colleague Heidi Schlumpf, to talk about a variety of events, to bring you the news, current events, politics, and to interpret them through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. The First Amendment of the Constitution guarantees a right to free exercise of religion. But in the more than 230 years the amendment has been in place, that right has gone through a number of interpretations. Throughout the years, the Supreme Court has heard a number of cases that have helped define the shape and scope of religious exercise, creating a well-defined bulwark of religious liberty for both majority religions like Christianity, as well as minority religions and new religious movements. However, in 1990, there was a landmark case before the Supreme Court known as Employment Division versus Smith. This case upended those well-established religious protections and basically eliminated the federal protection for the free exercise of religion in all but the most limited of circumstances. That has been the state of things for nearly 30 years. But now, with the shift in the balance of the Supreme Court towards a more conservative and activist set of judges, we've seen a slate of recent cases that have put the free exercise clause back into play. David, I know you pay close attention to the court, what I like to call the other SCOTUS. Give us some background here to help us understand more of what's going on. Absolutely. And uh, this is fascinating to me as a person who's been studying these cases for about 20 years now. Employment Division versus Smith was an interesting case in 1990 where uh, a minority religion, so a Native American religion that used peyote as part of its religious practices, two members of a drug treatment center were on a weekend where they were not at work and they participated in this Native American ritual where they ingested peyote. Then at a later time, they were given a random drug test at work. They tested positive for peyote and they were fired. And so they they filed for unemployment benefits and they were denied unemployment benefits. And their argument that eventually made it to the Supreme Court was that they had a right to free exercise to use this substance when they were not part of their work duties in order to have a religious ritual. And this was heard before the Supreme Court, and Justice Antonin Scalia was the one that wrote the majority opinion in Employment Division B. Smith, where he basically said, if you bring a religious objection and you are able to flout or to circumvent what he called neutral and generally applicable law, then that is basically anarchy. And so Employment Division v. Smith struck down any kind of free exercise exemption to 
neutral and generally applicable law. And as you said, that has been the law of the land now for nearly three decades. And throughout those three decades, religious conservatives have been wanting to find a way to bring back a robust free exercise protection. We can go down the rabbit hole about the attempts that they made, but Jay Sekulow, who has been in the news in the past couple of years, was central to that with a a case called Lamb's Chapel. But basically what has happened now is what we saw in 1990 was Antonin Scalia denying free exercise protections to what we might call a minority religion. It's not the religion of majority in this country. It's not Christianity. So Scalia said this minority religion cannot use free exercise to flout neutral and generally applicable law. In the last several years, what we've seen instead is majority religion, particularly Christianity, oftentimes Catholicism, bringing cases of free exercise to push against neutral and generally applicable law, and they've been winning. So now instead of the law protecting the practices of minority religions that might be disfavored in the public square, now we're seeing majority religion, Christianity, using this as a way to basically bludgeon out protections for minorities in things like medical care and access to insurance, in things like full access to facilities like having a cake baked for you when you walk into a bakery, those kinds of things. So these are the cases where we have seen now the religious liberty tide shift, but it's shifting now towards majority religion, not minority protections. And it's really fascinating that now free exercise is back in play, but in a very different way than it was when these things were developed before 1990. It seems to me, as you're describing this, it just reminds me of the way in which there's a hijacking of minoritization. And so we saw this, of course, with the Affordable Care Act back in 2008, 2009, 2010, where the Catholic Church, which is not a minority religion in the United States, uh, it's part of Christianity, more broadly speaking, which is a supermajority tradition in the U.S., but even within that has a distinctive set of resources and power and presence claiming religious liberty, right? These fortnights for freedom and so forth all around exactly this point you're raising. Let me ask you this, though. I'm curious about your take on if that case from 1990 were to go before the court today, how do you think it would be different? Would it be different? Or have the terms been changed so much by majority religion in the U.S. to claim a right to religious exemption that actually a a minority religion just wouldn't be recognized in the same way? I'm curious about how that would play out. It's a great question because you would think that there would be a general principle that would be applied. But we've actually got cases now that where we can answer that question. While Antonin Scalia was still alive, in fact, there were cases where there were attempts to use the kind of references to Employment Division v. Smith against these kind of majoritarian religious exceptions. And so Little Sisters of the Poor is a great example where the Little Sisters of the Poor were brought forward and saying, we have a religious objection to being included in this contraception mandate. The government offered some workarounds to that, and Little Sisters of the Poor still said that was unacceptable. Literally in the oral arguments at the Supreme Court while Scalia was still alive, it was raised and said, well, doesn't this activate Employment Division v. Smith? It's a neutral and generally applicable law. They've created an acceptable workaround, and yet they're still refusing the acceptable workaround. Don't we just use the precedent of Employment Division v. Smith? And Scalia waved his hand and said, this is a completely different case. Smith doesn't apply here. And so the thought that this would somehow be a general principle that could be applied, again, to protect those who are not part of majority religion, 
and I'm using majority religious opinion here or majority religious practice in a loose way, I should note the federal government does not recognize the distinction that I'm making between minority and majority religion. It simply recognizes religion as a category in principle. However, in practice, what we have seen at the court level is that when religion is recognized as a free exercise protection, it almost always is protecting, particularly since Employment Division v. Smith, it's almost always protecting what we would call majority or very well-established, very well-accepted Christian religions, and it's disfavoring what we might call new religious movements or religious movements that don't fit into the kind of Christian paradigm or the, let me even say the Judeo-Christian paradigm, because there's a lot of protection of Jewish practices as well in this. So, you know, this brings me to our shared tradition. We are members of a majority religious tradition in our own social context, which is Roman Catholicism, despite people like Ross do that, who sometimes will decry some kind of anti-Catholicism as a real threat. Sure, there are people who don't like Catholics, but this isn't the 18th century anymore. I, I just keep thinking about what the church teaches about the role of government. And we've talked about this, you and I and Heidi, we've talked about this a thousand times on this podcast. The church makes it very clear consistently that the role of the government is to protect the common good. It does not, in fact, advocate for, certainly since the Second Vatican Council, again, here we go to the true meaning of religious liberty, is that everyone has an inherent human right to exercise their religious tradition without harassment or interference and that sort of thing, provided, of course, it doesn't harm others. The thing that kills me about this, the way that the courts have been ruling, as you've summarized it, is that it's actually a kind of activist and transgressive action that follows so that the majority can oppress a minority tradition or what have you. I don't know. Do you have thoughts about, as a theologian, as a Catholic theologian, what can, in in American jurisprudence, what can we do about this? What kind of case can be made? Because it seems to be, you know, as I've heard other news reporting on this subject, it just seems to me like it's complete nonsense, that it's not even ends justifying means. It's just total rewriting of the meaning of case law and of constitutional rights and these sorts of things. And I don't know how you can respond to that. But theologically, it seems to me antithetical to what it is actually the church teaches. And it should be noted that justices like Alito, who is Roman Catholic, gave an address, I think, not long ago to the Federalist Society over Zoom, in which he used the Little Sisters of the Poor as a mascot and held them up as almost in an emotional appeal to why this Scalia approach and his own approach, Alito's approach and others, is justifiable. Now, to me, that's not a legally sound argument, right? That's a that's an appeal to uh, favoritism of some sort. Well, you, you're pointing to exactly the problem that is presented to us by the First Amendment. So the, the clause of the First Amendment that, that triggers all of this, it, it says in some that we won't make laws that establish a particular religion as the state religion, and we will not make laws that impede the free exercise of religion. Now, that has called for a kind of truce or balance, because there are always those religions that think that they have the truth, and they want their truth to be established at the highest levels of state. Okay, so we have a a clause that 
keeps that problematic. We can't use the power of the government supposedly to establish a religion, but also we can't use the power of the government to impede the practice of religion. And that balance has been struck in different places through the history that we're talking about, and it's not always been struck in a healthy way. So you could look to the pre-Smith era before 1990 And we had reached a kind of reasonable balance where minority and majority religions had their exercises pretty well protected, and we had some pretty good tests to see if a government, local or federal, wanted to impede those free exercises. We had some balancing tests that were in place to help to ask whether or not this was actually a good thing to do or could be done constitutionally. Smith knocked all of that out, and it it reset the free exercise kind of balance very much in favor of the government basically saying, if it's a neutral law and we're not explicitly going against your religion, you can't counterman this law. So it reset the balance in a different place. A lot of people didn't like that place. All of the Religious Freedom Restoration Acts that were enacted at the federal and the various state levels have been attempts to address that. Some of them have been successful. Some of them have not. What's happening now is an attempt to rebalance that balance now in a completely different place that's causing a whole bunch of different problems because now, even though it's restoring free exercise in many ways, it's not restoring free exercise with that pre-1990 set of checks and balances that were well-developed through the case law. It's just creating a fiat that's saying, no, now we're going to place it here. And here's why it's so tricky, Dan. Because now where the balance has been placed is any time that you can find any kind of secular exemption to a neutral and generally applicable law, you can use that secular exemption as a pretext for triggering this religious protection. So basically, any time you find a law with any exemption, it now has a religious exemption. And that is going to create, I think, the kind of anarchy that Scalia was talking about. And I'm going to— And, be that, and that's, that's like the cake— situation basically yeah. right yeah, yeah basically yeah. if you and or if if you have a law that says that you can and th- this is specifically what happened last Friday with this decision about the California cases if you have a law that says that you can't gather unmasked with more than a couple of households, but you make an exemption for something like going grocery shopping or something else. If there's a mask mandate, but it has certain exemptions about gathering or whatever, you can then use those secular exemptions as religious exemptions. I remember that argument and the reporting about that decision, and I found it preposterous, and I think you'd agree with me. The thing that struck me at the time when I was listening to some of that flashback to the arguments before the court and the justices' responses, my thought was, the grocery store is not one's exercise of religion. You cannot live without food. That is an absolute necessity. It'd be like saying, well, we have to keep the hospitals open. Therefore, you can have as many people you want gather in your megachurch. It is a non sequitur. It does not apply. And so I, I see the problem as you're pointing it out, and it's really dangerous. Going back again to the church teaching, I think we need to realize that this does not represent actually what the church teaches. This sort of jurisprudence is not reflective of You know, you can't point to, well, this is what my faith tradition says we should be fighting for. The Catholic Church does not support a theocracy. It does not support a reinstatement of a novel Christendom or something like this. And that's essentially what some of these activist judges and cases, the lawyers that bring these cases and organizations would like, including the Little Sisters of the Poor, who do tremendous pastoral ministry. Their argument effectively is we ought to have the right to infringe upon other people's exercise of liberty. And that is neither really in church teaching, nor is it 
supported by the Constitution of, of the United States. And yet, because there is this affinity a la Justice Alito for, oh, look at these nuns who do good work and we should really side with them kind of thing. It's kind of, a again, an appeal to empathy or an appeal to sympathy, ultimately. Then this kind of stuff gets pushed through. So it's upsetting and, and it's disturbing, don't you think? I do. And I will simply say, as a person who has been watching the court for a long time, things can be settled until they're not. The regime of Employment Division v. Smith was a fascinating time to be a person watching the court thinking about religious liberty issues. It is now an even more fascinating time. And I will be honest with you, I have no idea what's going to come next because what has been opened here is an interesting doorway. And what will really be telling is how these kinds of exemptions, these secular exemptions that are now religious exemptions, will be brought forward by organizations like the ones that want to give water to migrants in the desert. And if they start claiming that as a religious pretext for this, whether or not that same robust protection will be provided to religions that we could say are disfavored by the current majority of this court. And will they actually apply it as a principle or will they, as Scalia did, find a loophole to say, no, 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 those precedents no longer apply. I'm cynical enough to fear that the latter will be the case, but it'll be fascinating to see how more progressive religious organizations utilize these decisions because they are very broad and they are very ill-defined at this moment. Well, and I think it's your example of these charges that have been brought against those who are seeking to provide water or food or clothing or shelter for those who are in the deserts who may have entered through non-legal means into the United States or something. The irony here, of course, is that is precisely the directive that Christianity calls all Christians to do, to care for the alien, the stranger, the widow, the orphan, to clothe the naked, to provide water for the thirsty, food for the hungry, to visit the imprisoned. And isn't that a great, tremendous irony to think about using religious liberty, as it were, or the free exercise of religion in the, in the First Amendment clause to, to trample on the actual lived embodiment of Christianity. And maybe with that, this is a good place for us to wrap up this segment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to explore news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. This Thursday, April 22nd, is Earth Day, a good time to remind Catholics that our faith calls us to protect and care for the Earth and for the most vulnerable. And today, the most vulnerable includes those who suffer from the effects of climate change. Fires, droughts, flooding, and deadly storms are already causing devastation, and they disproportionately affect the poor, indigenous people, communities of color, and women and children. The first Earth Day in 1970 resulted in the passage of landmark environmental laws, but sadly, the U.S. stalled and even went backward during the past four years. You'll recall that the Trump administration pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, loosened air pollution regulations, and lifted protections of public lands. But there are some reasons for hope under the new Biden administration. Interior Secretary Deb Haaland, the first Native American to serve as a cabinet secretary, has issued a directive making climate change a priority in her agency's decisions. She's already reversed Trump-era orders that promoted oil and gas drilling on public lands. Also, Biden's infrastructure bill proposes investing trillions of dollars in renewable power, energy efficiency, and greener transportation. 
But the window for stopping rising temperatures is getting smaller. Almost six years after Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, there's much more that the church could be doing, not just in preaching and promoting the need to fight climate change, but also in prioritizing environmental concerns in its own infrastructure and investments. Just last week, the chair of the United Kingdom's Committee on Climate Change urged Catholics to pressure their bishops to put climate change and environmental issues at the heart of everything they do. Lord Devon also noted that climate change was intensifying religious persecution in places like Nigeria, where a decrease in available land for harvesting was leading to conflict between Christians and other religious groups. He said, quote, we have far too much concentration on sex and far too little on creation, unquote. Last year, the coronavirus pandemic halted most celebrations of Earth Day's 50th anniversary. Dan, how will you be marking the 51st Earth Day celebration this year? I really appreciate that question, David, because it allows me to do a little plug to invite our listeners. I'll be spending Earth Day, which is tomorrow, Thursday, April 22nd, 2021, virtually on the campus of Mercyhurst University in Western Pennsylvania, in Erie, Pennsylvania. And that evening, I'm, I'm scheduled to give a lecture titled Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Climate Change, Urgent Explorations of Global Climate Change and the Consistent Ethic of Life. And I, I think that title speaks to and a little bit of a spoiler alert here, which is my primary focus is to emphasize precisely what you just summarized for us, that in the Catholic community in England, at this point about the urgency, the importance of care for creation, of environmental justice, of what Pope Francis, borrowing from ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew, will call ecological conversion. All of these kinds of things are exactly what we need to focus on right now. I've said it on air here, on air, on podcasts here. Uh, previously, I've written about this, that I am firmly convicted that global climate change is the number one most important life issue for the church. And I think it's shared in the examples that you just gave in, in that great introduction. And so how am I going to celebrate Earth Day? Well, part of it is to use the platforms that I have. Earth Day is, is a day. It's a nominal day. It's one day of the year. It doesn't mean this is the only time we should pay attention to it, but it is a time set aside, much like our liturgical calendar. It's not that the resurrection isn't important 365 days a year, but on Easter, we, as the preface to the Eucharistic prayer says during the Easter season, where we laud you yet more gloriously in this Easter season, right? So Earth Day is a time for us to focus our attention, to be to call to mind the reality that both the Brazilian theologian Leonardo Boff and then later, more recently, Pope Francis have highlighted about the intersection, the connectedness between the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. And David, I think at the outset of your topper here, you made up a really good point about how it's not just human beings as such that suffer from these devastating effects of climate emergency, but we see this most directly, immediately, and harshly affecting the poorest of the poor, the most vulnerable, the most precarious. We can think about that on a global level when we think about, for instance, the islands of Micronesia that are slowly being absorbed into the ocean because of sea level rise. We could see it in our own backyard in places famously like Flint, Michigan, where Poor people of color are ignored and are subjected to the poisoning of their water systems. We see this as well in, in lots of other ways. But that's a start. I'm going to spend the day having conversations with students and with faculty and staff and then giving this public lecture to do my very small part in drawing attention to exactly these themes you name. My question is, 
what are the rest of us going to do? What can we do? And I admit it's difficult in the midst of a pandemic still to gather collectively, but there are lots of things we can still do. How about you? What's the family dalt up to? Well, we are thinking a lot about these questions. And even though my kids are 11 and 8, we talk about these questions. And my daughter in particular has gotten very, very animated about the the cost that this is taking on the earth and on creation. And she thinks a lot about and reminds us to be thinking about the ways in which we use resources. And so in that sense, the family adult is trying to be conscious of these kinds of things. But I'm also aware that there's a lot of ways in which we never have to pay attention to this at all because it's still not affecting us. We can still, in our privileged space, imagine that global warming is something that is yet to come. And this is the point that needs to be made again and again. It's not yet to come. It's already here. I think about that great theological tension of Christ's resurrection in the letters of Paul, the already not yet, You know, where the effects of the resurrection are in one place and they may not have hit you yet, but Paul says, but all of reality has been changed. We need to be saying, and particularly those of us who are still in a comfortable position, need to be saying all of reality has been changed. And even though it may be affecting the vulnerable and not affecting me yet, because I am tied up with the vulnerable as a fellow human being, a fellow child of God, but also as a person who's committed to the vulnerable as a Christian and to the suffering of others as a Christian— I want to make sure that I'm not just hiding in my comfort and that my family's not just hiding in our comfort, but that we're actually, that we're celebrating Earth Day and using it to bring resources to bear and to bring consciousness to bear about this issue and this problem, because it's here. Yeah, I think I really resonate with what you're saying about the comfort. I wrote an article that was published in a theology journal called the Heathrop Journal. It's a British theology journal back in 2019, where, where I talk about a concept I term anthropocentric privilege, that there is a kind of, just as privilege operates in a lot of other social spheres within the human family. So we can think about male privilege or cisgender privilege or straight privilege, racial privilege, white privilege, and so forth. These realities, these dynamics play out on the species level as well. So I think you're naming two things or you're pointing to two things that are really important. On the one hand, there is the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor plays out here, right? Because the privileged, the comfortable tend to occupy all of these categories and you and I fit into them. We need to acknowledge that as you have. You and I are white cisgendered men in this American context, very highly educated, yada, yada, yada. We can go on and on with all those privileges. And because of that, we don't necessarily feel the immediate consequences of global climate change today, just as we don't necessarily feel a lot of the consequences of a lot of things in society. It doesn't mean that those things aren't real and that other people aren't being harmed and that there aren't cries of the earth and of the poor that we who are in positions of privilege or comfort are actively ignoring. So these are sins of omission, even if we're not, as I often say when I give talks about Laudato Si, you know, Pope Francis points out, it's not people going around actively harming the environment. And the example I use is like, it's not like every morning I get up and I'm like, well, all right, I'm going to contribute to global climate change. And I roll a 50 gallon barrel of oil down 53rd Street and dump it into Lake Michigan. It's what he calls the sin of indifference. It's the fact that most people who can do something don't do something and less than that don't care. And so I think Earth Day is an opportunity for us to think about as a species collectively, as the human family, to think about how we structure our lives, the oikonomia, the economy, the structure of how we order ourselves as a society, and think about 
the ways in which our sort of being, quote unquote, on the top of the food chain, as it were, has isolated ourselves, has, has insulated us from the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor, both human and non-human alike. And so I see Earth Day also as an invitation for Catholics to have a kind of ecological examination of conscience. Are we thinking about this? How are we talking about this? What are we doing? What practices individually, collectively, as families, as societies, as church, what can we do in response? And I think part of that includes a lamentation. I think part of that includes an act of contrition, recognizing as we pray in the confidior for what we have done and as Pope Francis encourages us to focus on what we have failed to do as well. And frankly, there's no space, as Pope Francis makes clear in Laudato Si, there's no space for a Catholic to engage in the nonsense and the danger of climate denialism. We have got to stop this. And it's much like what we see with systemic racism or misogyny and patriarchy in our communities, racist jokes or derogatory language or terms and these kinds of things. Just like we are called to call one another out and to hold each other accountable out of love and out of the protection of the common good, so too I think we need to do this when it comes to global climate change. If you have family members, you have fellow parishioners, you have neighbors who are engaging in this kind of specious claim, I think it's incumbent on us to, to call that out, just like it would be incumbent on us to call out overt racist acts. Well, and there's a lot of thoughts going through my head right now. I'm thinking that I know that there are some who consider themselves parts of the Christian family who actually want to see the dissolution of the world because they see it as a, a necessary step for the for the return of the Messiah. I see those who basically dismiss any kind of concern about the world as idolatry and a kind of paganism. I see those who are bringing objections about, well, this is just, you know, what we really need to be concerned about is the unborn, not the earth, because God's going to take care of it. All all those kinds of reactions are swimming around in my head. I love the clarity of what you're saying, but I'm also aware that there is a lot of voices that are speaking against that clarity. Well, I think there are two things to say. You bring up a really good point because you're right. That's the kind of response you get when you find yourself in these conversations. With regard to the comment about the unborn, you know, if you are not concerned about global climate change, then you do not care for the unborn because there will be no world in which the, those yet to be born can live in and thrive and experience human flourishing, which is the purpose of Catholic moral theology. So this is where the consistent ethic of life comes in. You cannot claim to be pro-life and only care about the unborn and deny the reality of global climate change because you're damning them to a life of misery and maybe to death. You're contributing to death, a culture of death. The second thing is the irony, and you're right, there are these kind of Christians, and it's not as common in Catholic circles, though it creeps in on occasion, but in, in certain self-identified Christian communities, like you said, people who misread sacred scripture and understand the book of Revelation to suggest the new heaven and the new earth means you're going to have to burn everything else down to the ground. Interestingly, Paul never says anything about that as the oldest text in the New Testament. And when he's talking to the Thessalonians, the oldest of the New Testament letters, and they're concerned about the fact Jesus hasn't come back yet, Paul does not say, you know what we need to do? We need to really accelerate the destruction of the planet. <laughs> Curiously, that's not in the Bible. So everyone needs to, first of all, screw their head back on correctly. And the other thing I'll say is those who claim concern about the world, the material world, the physical world as a kind of paganism, also need to screw their head back on correctly because that itself is called Gnosticism. That is a, a dualistic view of the world that is anti-Christian. It goes all the way back to Irenaeus of 
Leon in the second century, to the early church fathers, East and West, to St. Augustine, to all the doctors of the church who point out that is not Christian teaching. It is a heresy to talk about this material world as not good, as in need of being destroyed, as being held suspect. And how can you claim to be Christian, the centerpiece of which demands that we assent to the fact that God enters this world as part of that material creation? So there's no way for you to maintain that kind of dismissive view of the human material world, of our physicality, or of the broader material world of creation without indicting yourself as a heretic, as a Gnostic, as somebody antithetical to Christian theology, to the basics of our creedal faith. I'm a little animated about this because it's it's, it's so illogical. And I'll just be bold about this. I'll be direct. If you hold that kind of view, you are not a Christian, period. You're not. You can't be. You can't maintain the incarnation on the one hand and say this kind of nonsense on the other. Well, that those are strong words, but I think that they're necessary words because, again, comfort can distract us to think that we can quibble about language and not draw these kinds of very stark uh, lines to say, no, there, there are— there are lines that we are in danger of crossing. The amount of carbon dioxide in the air is a line that we are in danger of crossing, or we may have already crossed. There are lines of the diversity of species that we are in danger of crossing and may have already crossed. We're the most casual apex predators in global history, and yet we are doing more damage than any other apex predator has ever been able to do, that should be of concern if you really do believe that God loves creation. And so that that speaks to exactly what you're talking about with this kind of reminder in Laudato Si and the reminder of the consistent Christian tradition going back to the first centuries. Yeah, it, it's as simple as that. It really is It's perplexing. You and I, it's a little bit of shop talk because we're theologians, and this is what we think about, this is what we teach, this is what we reflect on on a regular basis. But the inconsistency of such claims, and this is why I always bring it back to, to the pro-life language, because that's what most people, I think— imagine is central to Catholic Christianity in the United States. It's always this language of pro-life, right? This is the hot-button issue. Well, there's nothing pro-life about climate uh, denialism, climate change denialism, and there's nothing pro-life about prioritizing certain categories of human development over others, human beings in utero versus human beings outside of the uterus. And so this kind of it's intellectual inconsistency, it's theological inconsistency, it's moral inconsistency, and what we need is more consistency, hence the consistent ethic of life. And that's where we're going to need to leave it today. However you celebrate Earth Day, please do talk to your friends and loved ones about these concerns and be thinking and praying about this. We will be doing the same. Heidi will be back with us in two weeks. Dan, I'm glad to see you. Thanks for being with me today. You've been listening to The Francis Effect. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. 
We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have seasons worth of episodes going back into history. We hope that you listen to all of them, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening.